Amen. Please be seated. My son asked me, Dan, are you going to do another musical sermon today? One more week? I have to, because we've come to the two most powerful parts of Messiah. Now, you know when you have heard Messiah sung, usually what you hear is part one, which we studied last week, and a few selected portions from two and three, namely the Hallelujah Chorus, which is really not the Hallelujah Chorus, it's just Hallelujah. At the end of the second part, which we'll study today, you'll see why it is placed where it is placed. I will read Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, which make up the 23rd, 24th, 25th, and 26th song, the second part of Messiah. Hear God's Word. This is in the King James Version, the version that Handel used when he composed this masterful piece. Hear God's Word, Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for our Messiah, the Anointed One, our Christ. One who has come to die for our sins. But Lord, there's something somber about that thought, but there's something joyous about the great glory that you bring upon yourself by redeeming sinful men and women like us. Lord, today as we study this survey of your word in song, I pray, especially in this Advent season, that we would come to a new appreciation, that we would be different after we read and hear again today, different from the way we came in. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we will have again a multimedia extravaganza innovation like you have never, ever seen, at least in my ten years as a pastor here. I want you to look for a moment. I have in your bulletin the words, part two and part three, of Handel's Messiah, or Handel's Messiah, to say it appropriately. Please notice that I didn't realize that someone said to me, you know, I was worried when I saw this because I didn't have the words of the song. I just saw those Bible verses there. That may be funny, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize that this musical piece, the reason why it has lasted so long and it's so powerful, it's word for word the Bible. I mean, there's no adaptation made. Charles Jennings put the words together. He did a survey of redemptive history as a picture of the glory of God. He gave it to Handel, who then took it, and in 24 days composed Messiah. He took six days to finish the first section. Nine days to finish section two. Clearly the most theologically and doctrinally pregnant of the whole 
composition. Six days, then, to finish the final section. The first section deals with the prophecy and the birth. The second section, which we'll look at here today, and just look there for a moment, as you open it up and see part two, you'll see that it begins with the first several songs talking about the suffering of Christ. At 31, we see the death of Christ. 32 and 33 are the resurrection of Christ. 34 and 35 is the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. He's given the name above all names. 36 is the equipping of the saints for the expansion of the church, for the gospel to go forward, for the subduing of the nations. 37, 38, 39, the commissioning of the church. He gives us gifts to spread the gospel. Then 40 is opposition that comes to the church. And that's not looked at as a negative thing. In fact, it's a purging thing. Handel looks at it as a positive thing. Because then there is a subduing of the nations. The nations rage, but Messiah's kingship continues to move, continues to expand. 41, 42, and 43, we might think of them as the subduing of the nations. And hallelujah comes as Christ subdues the nation. Despite all the opposition, the church continues to grow, continues to expand. Hallelujah, he is the king of all kings. That's where hallelujah comes. Then, as a result of this stated victory of the king, uh, we have a confidence that's given to us. in section 3, or part 3 of Messiah, talks about the confidence you and I can have to be agents of expansion, And that's the ultimate final resurrection. It's a celebration or a thanksgiving hymn about the fact of our eternal life in Christ. Because Jesus is raised again, we too will be raised again. So what temporal trial would actually stop us from seeing the kingdom advance if the fact is we'll live forever? And you see 1 Corinthians 15 in song throughout part 3 of Messiah. Now, we'll walk back through this together. Do you know that my wife and I had the opportunity to be in Moody Bible Institute's production of the Messiah? Uh, In the four years I was there, three of the years, and Sherry one of the years, Sherry sang alto. I set up the stage three years in a row. (laughs) But I participated. Someone had to do it. The big oratorio choir. Now, you know what an oratorio is. An oratorio is like an opera uh, without the actors and the acting in it. And... uh, Handel wrote 40 operas in his life, and he wrote 30 oratorios like the one we're studying. He then also wrote 120 cantatas and over 2,000 different solos. Beethoven said that he is the master of us all, speaking of Handel. An oratorio is usually someone writing words, putting them together to tell a story through soloists and choir. This is unusual, though. This is exact word-for-word scripture used to tell the story of redemption. I mean, if I were to give any of us the task to take all 66 books of the Bible and do a, a survey that does justice to what the Bible teaches, I don't think any of us could do it. But Charles Jennings did it, and then to make it more amazing, without switching any of the words or changing any of the way things were said, Handel took it word-for-word and gave us what we have here before us. Let's look at how this flows so beautifully. You remember and don't forget the first sections about prophecy from Isaiah 40 and the actual birth of Christ. Now part 2 begins with John the Baptist saying in 22, 
Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Now picture this. After all this Old Testament prophecy, 700 years of prophecy from the book of Isaiah, now this, this locust-eating, honey-eating, hairy-looking, fur-wearing prophet comes on the scene and sees Jesus and says, He's the Lamb. Now John himself was a fulfillment of prophecies we read of in Isaiah and Malachi and in other places, Haggai in the Old Testament. But he was not the one. The one who was the one, he came to point, to make the way straight, to say he's it. In John 129, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So there's an identification of Messiah here at this point in Messiah. Lamb, the picture of a lamb, is now played out for us from the classic passage on the Lamb of God in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Jesus himself. The rest are four... More songs are written based on Isaiah 53, one more in a little while. But look with me at the words of Isaiah 53. And each song beautifully depicts the sorrow and suffering of Christ as he is the lamb led to the slaughter for us. Remember, this is written 700 years before he comes. And look at how vivid it is. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and number 23. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, there was a, a solemnity to the life of Christ that we'll never totally understand because of the weight he carried. And these verses capture this in a moment. Isaiah 50 is referred to now. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. He took it. The detail of Christ's suffering 700 years before he actually undergoes it is remarkable. It's supernatural. The 24th song in Messiah, the second part, continues in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Do you know what it means to carry someone's sorrows? It's to carry someone else's burdens. And you may carry one or two. Maybe you have a wayward child and you're carrying their burdens. You know how that feels. You yourself are a sinner, though. So some of those burdens, you probably think to yourself, maybe I contributed, and that's part of the burden. Well, Jesus carried our burdens, and he did not contribute to our burdens in the sense that he did not give us the sins he did not commit the sins. He didn't do something to make us sin. Yet he carries our burdens, not just one or two's burdens. The sins of all of God's chosen people were put upon him. And he carried our grief. He carried our, carried our sorrow. And if we had time to listen to it all, you would feel the weight of it in the music as it comes forth. The 25th song continues. or First back to verse 5, which is continued in the 25th song. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes they are healed. Now, recognize 700 years, scourging wasn't the normal way in which punishment was inflicted or discipline was inflicted. So the picture of stripes on one's back, which would come from a whip, is something that's somewhat foreign to the writer 700 years before it actually is fulfilled in Christ. With his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. The imagery of sheep who follow. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, laid on him, the iniquity of us all. The shepherd leads us and lays his life down for us. The song I want to play is here, 27, All they that see him laugh him to scorn. This section in... Uh, in the, the movement or the oratorio, now goes away from Isaiah 53 and captures a text that's even older than Isaiah 53. It's Psalm 22. We read it at Easter time. You know, Messiah was written for Easter time, not Christmas. 
The first time it was ever sung was in April of 1742 in Dublin, Ireland. It's only since become a Christmas song we sing or an Advent season oratorio. But the climax is coming here in the middle of the second part. All they that see him laugh into scorn. We get a feeling of the humiliation that Christ underwent in the sense that God was forsaking him. And Jesus knew that God would not ultimately abandon him to the grave. But for that moment, God the Father, for the sake of the forgiveness of our sins, had to turn his back on his son. This song really captures the humiliation that he undergoes. This is written by David several hundred years before Isaiah writes. Let's listen together to 27 and 28. Follow closely to the words. of the 22nd Psalm, 7 and 8, written 1,000 years before Jesus actually died on the cross. The picture of people circling and mocking him is vivid. And you'll notice Handel's use of text painting, where he matches the melody with the scene that you read in the Scriptures. You had multiple voices saying something to 
the Son on the cross. You'll see this throughout the various pieces that you listen to of Handel. He brings out, uh, he pictures for you what the text says in the melody. No one did it like he did it. But please don't lose the power of a prophecy that is a thousand years before it's actually fulfilled in Messiah himself. Now we head towards uh, the death of Christ itself on the cross, uh, but speaks not just of the physical nature of his death, but the spiritual battle that's inside the Son of Man as he is dying. Psalm 69:20. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was none. Not even the Father had pity on the Son because of my sin. Because of your sin. None. He found no solace anywhere with anyone. There was none. Neither found any to comfort him. The Son takes upon him something that none of us can fully appreciate. This is what is referred to in Lamentations. Written by Jeremiah is referred to, verse 12, sung beautifully in Messiah. Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. There isn't any. It's a rhetorical question. There is no other sorrow that can match this. 31. He was cut out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53 is referred to again. He was cut out of the land of the living. For the transgression of thy people was he stricken. This is a reference to his death and his burial. Cut off from the land of the living. In Uniquely, for all the climaxes that occur, the crescendos that are there, the resurrection itself does not enjoy its celebration until the third part of Messiah. It's somewhat subtle what happens here. 32 is gloomy. But thou didst not leave his soul in hell, neither didst thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. It's a statement about the fact that God will not leave Jesus' body in the tomb. But it's very somber. Then kind of like the spring morning, Unlike this cold deadness you see out here with the snow, greenness starts showing. And it's subtle, but it's beautiful. And a reference to Psalm 24, which Pastor Nathan preached on not too long ago. An ascension psalm of the king being enthroned and now entering into the city to take his throne. When Jesus rises again, brothers and sisters, he takes his throne at that time. We're not waiting. Now, yes, there'll be an ultimate coming, no doubt. But he is given the name above all names. After he pays the price and God says, by resurrecting him, I accept the sacrifice and I make you the king. That's why Psalm 24 is referred to. Let's listen to lift up your heads, O ye gates. The words are Psalm 24, 7 through 10.
of handling the fact of the resurrection. He is the king of glory. Now the fun begins. Because the church age, in the sense that we know it, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to all the nations starts as Jesus raises again. He spends 40 days commissioning the apostles, getting the church prepared. He goes to heaven to send his spirit. His spirit gives gifts so that the church may expand. And from heaven, he rules his church and he expands his church. And he grows his church. And the gospel has its effect. And it has battles against darkness when it comes. But ultimately, surely, it wins. That's the story of where we are now. Even as dark as it may seem at the moment we sit, somewhere on this earth, the kingdom is growing continually. God is moving these things. Look at the 34th song. It speaks of Christ's ascension to heaven. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Speaking of... Jesus is higher than the angels. He is not said that he loves the angels like that, only the Son. And he is now at this high, exalted place. Uh, Hebrews 1, 6, the next song is, Let all the angels of God worship him. He's the name above all names. He ascends and multiplies his church. Psalm 68 is referred to in its cross-reference with Ephesians 4, Thou art gone up on high, thou hast led captivity captive, and receive gifts for men, even for thine enemies, that the Lord God might dwell among them. So there's a sense in which he is now going to exert his lordship over the earth in a new way. And the Lord gave the word. A beautiful passage from Psalm 68:11. It's God, by his power and sovereignty, giving his presence through the word. In all the ways in which the church expands, let us never lose this simple fact. It's as the Word of God is preached and taught and shared. That's where God gives multiplication. You wonder why the church is so weak in America today? It's quit preaching the Word. It's preaching other stuff. It's making people feel good when they come in. They feel good. They're numbed. They walk out. But they don't know the Word. And so where do they carry the, how do they carry the Word of the darkness? But God gave the Word. And the Lord gave the Word. And great was the company of preachers. Listen to this short song about the empowerment that we have to see the church expanded because of the word. the commissioning of the church that unfolds the 38th song how beautiful are the feet it speaks of the missionary enterprise of the church with great confidence and empowerment because of our lord and king reigning how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things there's a celebration portion in this 
uh, oratorio that talks about the expansion because of the word going forth preached. And their sound has gone out. Romans 10, verse 18. Their sound has gone out into all the lands and their words unto the ends of the world. Now, notice what comes next, because this is not somehow discouraging to handle or should be to any of us. Yes, the nations will rage. Yes, they will come in opposition to the gospel. But this is actually a sign that light is meeting darkness. In fact, if it doesn't come against us, we're probably not really bearing the light. We become far too comfortable. Look what it says, Psalm 2, which is, of course, referred to in Acts 4. Why do the heathen rage and why do people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But you see, there is no more Christ as victim motif in Scripture after he is humiliated and pays the price. Now it's a matter of God exerting his lordship over and subduing people to himself. Psalm 2, verse 3. You might talk, call this whole section 41, 42, and 43, the subduing of the nations. Psalm 2, verse 3, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. Verse 4, he that dwelleth in the heavens shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision, confusion. He will exert his authority over. Verse 9 of Psalm 2, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There are many ways in which, my brothers and sisters, you could share Jesus with people you know and do it. But please don't ever share him as some sniveling, begging Savior. He is the Lord of glory. Now, he loves us. He's compassionate. Look what he has done for us. Certainly, we should depict this when we're talking to folks. But don't ever give the impression that Jesus is somehow put out if someone doesn't pick him. It's Jesus who picks us and subdues us to himself. That's why we can sing hallelujah. Now, I want to mention something about this next song that you know so well. It was first performed, Messiah, in Dublin, Ireland. It was received very well in 1742. When it came to England, like everything in England, especially if it's written by a foreigner, and Handel was a foreigner, it was not received right away. Uh, it was a lot of people put it down and the critics were ruthless against him personally. But slowly, and when I say slowly, I'm talking inside of a year, it became uh, the most popular, most requested oratorio in all of England. So the king himself, King George II, came to hear Handel actually conduct his own Messiah. Now, the way the story goes, the king had listened to this whole first part, the prophecy and the birth of Christ. He listens to the whole second section, is overwhelmed with the lordship, uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation and subduing the nations. And when he gets to the last song, the 44th song now, and he hears the first hallelujah of the hallelujah chorus, he stands. Now this is significant, because royal protocol is when the king stands, everybody stands. Because he's the sovereign. But also, what does it symbolize when the king, who is the king of the most powerful nation on earth at that time, when he stands to give praise to another, what does it say about the other? That's the real king. So ever since, whenever the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, we stand while we listen to it. Let's stand as we listen and listen to the words. They're taken from, directly from the Bible, the book of Revelation, the Hallelujah Chorus.
So now you have it in context where hallelujah comes, why it comes. Did you notice the words? Maybe you've never caught them as you've listened to it. Uh, It's a pronunciation of the lordship of Christ. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We're not looking ultimately just forward to it, brothers and sisters. It's now. It's the enterprise of the church to see this happen by his sovereign hand. Part three. It's not as though it's an excursus, but it is a section that focuses now on what it meant back in 38 and 39 when the resurrection of Christ happened and why that affects you and I. Why we can be bold in our witness. You may have been at a funeral where you've heard 45, the first song of part three sung. I know that my Redeemer liveth from Job 19, the most ancient of books. Even way back in the Old Testament, there was a concept of resurrection, bodily resurrection. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. Now, it jumps to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. Because he's raised again, you and I will be raised again. That gives us boldness for what we're called to do in this temporary life that we have. I've decided that the song I want sung at my funeral, not to be morbid, is this next one. Maybe you'll decide it after you hear it. The reason why is that it's a beautiful text painting, classic handle text painting, where the text is sung, uh, the tune is matched with the text itself, Turn it up just a little because you'll hear how soft the words, you could always turn it up as far as I'm concerned, but turn it up just a little and listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 being sung, Since by man came death.
you know the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Buddha's tracks lead into the graveyard. Muhammad's tracks go into the graveyard. We need someone's tracks on the other side. We have them in Christ. That gives us a boldness that should be unmatched as it relates to sharing this message, spreading this message. The rest of this portion, this uh, section really is devoted to 1 Corinthians 15, at least a larger portion of it. Look what it says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This huge section on the resurrection put to music. If God be for us then. You see how what he's saying? It's a sermon. Say, listen, this is the great commission of the church. What the church is going to do. The reason why you can be bold is because you will live forever in him. And if this God who can do all this is for us, who could be against us? Handel's an optimist. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ that dieth? Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. We'll conclude by listening to the conclusion of Handel's song. I love the Hallelujah Chorus, but I do believe this is the best possible way he could have ended this. Listen and read as you listen. To the word of God being sung, worthy is the Lamb.
final Messiah performances with Handel present, a nobleman praised Handel as to how entertaining the Messiah was. Handel replied, My Lord, I should be sorry if I only entertained them. I wish to make them better. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for our Messiah, Lord Jesus, for laying your life down for us. Father, I pray that we would go forth as a changed people. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond together by turning in our hymnals to 195. Please notice Isaac Watts writes the words, but you can see who provides the music. Let's stand as we sing verse 1 and verse 2 of joy to the world. The Lord has come. 